We are one or two messages away from wrapping up this beginning of the year series. And I know that we're near the end or maybe we're past due like the milk uh, date because yesterday uh, one of my kids said, Dad, are we going to be in Second Samuel this Sunday? And then last night my wife said, so we're going to be in Second Samuel uh, tomorrow morning. So I know that we're getting past the due date on the series apparently. Uh, Second Samuel's around the corner. We're not there yet. Maybe a week or two uh, still left. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. It's been a blessing, though, to think of Christ, whom we love, though we have not seen him. First Peter one, the true believer shows love for the unseen Christ. It's been a comfort to know that God's word governs our worship. Deuteronomy 12. That we include in worship only those things that are required in God's word when we meet for worship. It's a comfort to know God's word governs our worship. What a wonder to know that the almighty God displays his grand glory in Christ through churches like ours. What a wonder to know that. It's been a rich encouragement to know how much the Father loves us, that God's word shapes our prayers, and that God's word should shape the priorities we have in our prayers. So loved ones, in our in our prayers, we should prioritize the prayers of Scripture like Ephesians 3 of knowing and experiencing the love of the Father through Christ. Ephesians 3. And what a motivation all of this is for our evangelism. Last week, Ron Bean talked to us about evangelism. We talked about it this morning, that as we know the love of Christ in better ways, we move out in evangelism to proclaim the love of Christ to those who don't know him, that Christ died for our sins. That he rose from the dead. And that if you believe in him, he'll forgive you of your sins. That's the good news that God's love, the love of Christ constrains us. Second Corinthians five. So across and above all these beginning of the year messages, we can write this phrase. I hope so. The love of God. That God's word, all of his commands, those commands that we like and that we don't like are a revelation of his love for us. God could have given us the silent treatment. The universe is massive and he can pick any hiding spot he wanted. But he speaks to us because he loves us. And the mandated elements of worship keep us free from the fads of cultural idols or church fads and display the unique excellence of God as a church and the gift of prayer. So often underused or misused as a means for us and others to know more of the love of Christ and Christ himself. The supreme proof of the father's love is now the supreme focus of all those who know Jesus. Write this phrase over this series, the love of God. I thought about breaking into a song at this point, but I won't. But at this point in my notes, this old refrain came to my mind. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. This morning, I want to continue looking at another aspect of the father's love for us. We might think it a mere formality. Or simply a matter of organizational efficiency alone. But I think this topic this morning might be overlooked in one way that God cares for us. There are lots of ways that he cares for us. We could give many answers to the question, how do we know God cares for us? 
And in part, we've been doing that with this topical expositional series. But here's an answer I want us to think about this morning. One of the overlooked ways that God shows his love to us is by giving us qualified church leadership. The two biblical offices of church leadership are trustees and committees, specifically floral committees, search committees, and parking lot committees. That was not an amen, but an oh me. I'm joking, of course. The, the two biblical offices are elders and deacons, that the Father extends his love for us through qualified church leadership, qualified men to serve as elders, First Timothy 2 and 3, and he also gives deacons. The Father shows his love to us through qualified leadership. That's our main thought this morning. I want to back up and get a running start before we jump into it. What I mean is I want to put this thought of God's love to us through leadership within a broader context. So another way that God shows his love to us is through a congregation of committed believers that Christ cares for members of his body through members of a church body. Have you ever thought of churches like that? A place where the risen Christ gives more of his love to us. So think of this. As imperfect as the leadership of Corinth was, as imperfect as the members were, it was still the church of God. Christ was not ashamed to call Corinth his bride. What's the point? Well, as imperfect as our own church might be, as imperfect as your leaders are, as imperfect as the members are, it's still the church of God, a visible display of his glory, a place where God intends to give us more of his love by his spirit. Do you want to know more of the father's love? Do you want to experience the full range, the full panoply of all of his love, then you must be a committed part of a church. Tim Keller put it this way, that if you want a God who will allow you to have deep, meaningful experiences with him without the church, you'll have to make that God up. The father's care and love are on display through his congregation. Now, here's one way to underline that. We'll think about it again later, but in a first century document called Acts, A veteran church planner named Paul is addressing the leaders of a local congregation in the church at Ephesus. Paul admonishes the elders of Ephesus with these words in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention first to yourselves. Then pay attention to all of the flock. In which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Why? To shepherd, to care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here we have in Acts 20, the first message in the New Testament, an ordination sermon in a sense, addressed to elders uniquely of a local church. And beyond that, we learn that local churches like Ephesus and Emmanuel are where God intends for his people to experience care. How do we know that? Because he says, care for the church of God. Or if you have another translation, it's actually the word shepherd, shepherd the flock of God. God wants his people to experience shepherding care and flocks that he calls churches. Uh, Why? Because he loves them. And we know how much he loves his sheep because it says shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Such an arresting phrase that there are textual variants because some of the scribes said, surely it couldn't say that. You see how precious the church is to Christ. One of the simplest, ordinary ways the Father shows deepening love for us is through congregations of committed believers, congregations full of believers, just as lovable as you are. And I am. 
He wants to show more of his shepherding care because he loves us and praise the Lord for our church. Praise the Lord, we're not the only congregation. I was in Brooklyn last week. We, we prayed for Vincent. I talked to a pastor in Vienna last week who, who, who Lord willing, has installed a, a, their first group of elders. Talked to another in Oregon. Any church that administers baptism and the Lord's Supper rightly, that preaches God's word, focusing on the forgiveness of sins through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and practices church discipline is a true church. We are not alone in Greenville or the world. And all of God's people said, Amen and praise the Lord. If the last few messages together about this prayer, uh, put, about prayer, you put it together, we get something like this. You can experience more of the Father's love through prayer. So pray. We experience more of the Father's love through membership in a church. So be part of a church. We will miss aspects of his love if you don't pray for it. You will miss aspects of his love if you're not connected to a congregation. That's Hebrews 3. Read it. The church is precious to Christ. The church that he weeps over for its sin is still precious to Christ. Is the church that precious to you? Now, that's the broad context of the topic that the father's love comes to us through churches. And now, according to Ephesians four, with that context of local churches in mind, the risen Christ has given elders and deacons to extend his care for us. So this morning, we're just taking one small part of God's care for us in the church. In the past, we've done series more than once on the one and others. That's how God shows his love for us. Absolutely. But this morning, we're thinking of another aspect. What is one way that the risen and reigning Christ extends his care for his sheep? And the answer might surprise us. It's through the leadership of elders and deacons, Ephesians 4. Why? Because elders, even if they function imperfectly, their office is to help us think of Jesus, the good shepherd. And even if deacons don't function perfectly, their office is to help us think of Jesus, the suffering servant. How kind of God that even in the church, he wants us to think of his son, the good shepherd, and his son, the suffering servant. So that everywhere you look, you think of Jesus, the shepherd, Jesus, the servant. That's why he's given us these offices. Maybe you're not a Christian here today. So you're here in a day we're looking at leadership structure in a congregation. And the organizational structure represents something about who God is and what he's like. Or maybe you are a Christian. And you've seen churches that function hypocritically and you've been turned off. You've heard of pastors who steal money or who sleep with church members like Eli's sons did in the Old Testament. These are terrible blasphemies on the character of God. The Bible is more critical of bad leadership than we might realize. Go back and read the beginning of that passage we read together in Ezekiel 34 to hear how God excoriates those people, shepherds who mistreat his sheep. And listen this morning, you might also hear how much you actually need God as your shepherd. Because we all have one. Who is yours? Now, generally, our custom is to turn to one passage of the Bible, but we're going to turn to a few this morning, but mainly 1 Timothy 3. Would you, 
Would you locate 1 Timothy 3? Or if you have a copy of your order of worship, right in the front panel is, is the text in part we'll look at today. Just asking four questions that won't all receive equal weight. Who are the leaders in the church? What are the qualifications? What do they do? And why are they there? Who are they? What are the qualifications? What do they do? Why are they there? Well, here we are in 1 Timothy 3, thinking about who are the leaders in the church. Now, Paul started this church in Ephesus, and he's pastored there before moving on. But now, several years later, bad teaching and bad behavior have crept into this church. Even churches planted by an apostle experience doctrinal drift and need redressing. So in 1 Timothy, Paul writes to a younger pastor named Timothy, and he tasks Timothy with reforming this church according to God's word. The church in Ephesus had all sorts of problems doctrinally and behaviorally and ethically. And Paul wants Timothy to stay there and fix it. We looked a few weeks ago at Paul's purpose in writing in 1 Timothy 3.14. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You know, one of the things that tells us is that God is not indifferent even to how his household must be organized because we're getting a whole chapter about it in this book. We made the point several weeks ago when we spoke of God's word regulating our worship from Deuteronomy 12, that church organization and now church conduct reflect something of his glory. And even if this doesn't matter most, it's still an important matter. Over time, evidently, we see from this that church leadership can fail to display the glory of God, particularly in their character. So in chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy about reestablishing qualified church leadership. And 1 Timothy 3.1, if scriptures given publicly, would have been read to this congregation and everybody would have been put on note. Look at 1 Timothy 3.1 with me, how he begins This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Maybe your translation says aspires to be a bishop or the NLT here says aspires to be a church leader. Now, I think I think that translation here is off the mark and misleading because Paul is not simply saying being a church leader. He's referring to a specific office, an official role In the church, an office. And what is that role? Well, the first role in verse 1 is the office of an overseer or bishop. And you know it's a special office because now you have a series of qualifications all the way down through verse 7. And then in verse 8, he mentions a different office in the church. Deacons likewise, and then a list of qualifications that follow. The point is simply this. What are the two biblical mandated offices in the church? According to 1 Timothy, and you could see this from other texts in the Bible, they are overseers, or pastors and elders, and deacons. Those are the two offices in the church, overseers and deacons. There's no mention anywhere in these pages, or in the New Testament, of things popular in Baptist churches, like trustees and committees and so on. The point is, who are the leaders of the church? Elders and deacons. What are the qualifications? Now we'll spend a lot of time here. Well, this passage tells us that overseers or elders and deacons need to be qualified. The end of verse 1 says that this church office is so noble 
It's a noble task, or actually like this, because this is what it feels like. It's a good work. A, a, a kalu ergu, a good work. Then notice how verse 2 starts. Therefore, an overseer must be, and then a number of character traits. Now, here's the question I'm asking. Why does Paul use therefore as verse 2 starts? Another way to state it is this. What's the connection between the office of overseer being a noble task and the therefore? You know, there are any number of questions that you should ask in studying the Bible that depend on the type of literature that you're in. Do you know the type of questions that you should ask when you're studying discourse? Do you know what they are? Well, here here is why the therefore follows. Here it is, because being an overseer in a church is so important. It takes more than just somebody's desire. This is such a vital role. If anyone desires this office, yes, 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 you have to meet these qualifications. First Timothy three says this. Qualified applicants only. I think of it like this. I know we know this in our own lives. Some of us have are maybe resp- uh, responsible for recommending people for jobs or we're respectfully for hiring or HR or we have our own businesses and we're careful about whom we select for particular roles. Well, how much more careful should we be in selecting workers for the Lord's church? That's why 1 Timothy 3 is here. Not everyone who looks the part is the part. Not everyone who has the desire should be one. They need to be therefore qualified. Now, churches can make at least three mistakes with these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. One mistake is is that churches think that the only qualification is that somebody has a desire. If they desire it, why deny it? But beloved, every call and desire has to be confirmed by God's word and God's people. David's desire, we've seen in 2 Samuel 9, a good desire was denied by God and his word. I mean, this is real silly, I know, but somebody may think that he or she has the gift of playing the piano. But if nobody has the gift of listening to you play the piano, then you don't have the gift of playing the piano. The passage says that a desire is a good place to start, but a desire alone is never determinative. That's why the passage lays down qualifications. Something more than desire is needed. Another mistake is that we look for the wrong qualifications. Now, we might be tempted naturally to look for the most successful, the the person who gets things done, a person with charisma, a people known for for this or that or, or articulate people. Others can look for the oldest people, the most educated people. I mean, just pick any common book off the shelf and what is it that we look for? What do we expect? It might be because... It might be a Myers-Briggs personality, an Enneagram personality type, or you want to see a spectrum of personality types among the church leaders. Now, those might be some of the worst things to emphasize most for no other reason than the Bible doesn't emphasize any of those things most. Here's an exercise. Read the pastoral epistles. Write down what the Lord requires, particularly of pastors. Just take 1 Timothy 4. Look at all the 12 commands or so that are given to Timothy. Write all of those down. My point is, insist on those things. There is a growing list of expectations placed on ministers that's certainly expanding the role that's greater to carry. I know this isn't unique to pastors. I know with speaking to some of you as teachers of the like, your job role has vastly expanded what you signed up for. 
I mean, you thought you signed up to teach math. But now you have to be a life coach and you submit more lesson plans and you celebrate everybody's pronouns and you deal with discipline matters and you have to be at a fundraiser and you have to lead a tour group and you answer every parent's email and that's all in the first hour of your day. Well, in a similar way, the job expectations of what people tend to think of what pastors should be like has grown beyond anything the Bible actually insists the pastor should do or be like. Pastors now are expected. It's lessening. It may kick up again into every issue because silence is violence, or at least they're not being prophetic. They have to be good at fundraising and manifest emotional intelligence. They have to be good at vision casting and rarely show signs of compassion fatigue and sound as wise as the people on the podcast and rarely say anything out of deep conviction. They must be experts in everything. But if they try to speak into any one thing, they probably shouldn't. Well, because they're pastors. Now, there's no uh, intention to misunderstand. The search for leadership doesn't begin with the most incompetent, the biggest losers, the youngest, the most socially awkward, and so on. But by, by placing emphasis on matters like fill in the blank, it's akin to Samuel going to Jesse's house looking for the next king, and his qualification is who looks the part. But God looks for something far different than the world looks for. And it's really quite simple. It's ordinarily unusual. He looks for people who meet these character qualifications. This is an old poem. This side of Calvin, Phyllis McGinley reflects on what now people expect of pastors. And she then puts a knife in at the end. It's called This Side of Calvin. The Reverend Dr. Harcourt, folk agree nodding their heads in solid satisfaction, is just the man for this community. Tall, young, urbane, but capable of action. He pleases wherever he serves. He marshals out the younger crowd and lacks trace of clerical unction. He cheers the Kiwanis and the Eagle Scout and is popular at every function. And in the pulpit, eloquently speaks on divers' matters with both wit and clarity, art, education, God, the early Greeks, psychiatry, St. Paul, and true Christian charity. Vestry repairs that shortly must begin. He speaks of all things but sin. He seldom mentions sin. That's the ministry this side of Calvin, that poet writes. To look at it differently, Jesus might, might meet few of the qualifications that we tend to emphasize. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 53 There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Well-liked, successful in ministry, a good leader. Jesus' own family thought him mad, possessed of a demon, and throughout his life, Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected, opposed and afflicted at every turn. His congregation never grew larger than 12. One of them was a fake. The others fought behind his back, regularly took things out of context. And left him when he died. It's not an exaggeration to say that by all human accounts, Jesus looked like a failure at his death. Behold your God. This is the king of the Jews. And yet Jesus, the stone the builders rejected, became the chief cornerstone of our salvation. None of this, beloved, is to glorify mediocrity, but just to caution us from God's word of insisting on matters for church leadership, the Bible doesn't. He looks for character 
more than anything else. Transformed by the personality, by the gospel, more than a gittered-on personality or, or this or that or whatever else. So, so two things so far. They, churches fail with these qualifications by thinking the only thing that matters is do you want to do it? By having the wrong qualifications. And thirdly, I would say by misusing them and misusing them in two ways. Two ways. If you look at these qualifications in 1 Timothy, if your Bible's open, we'll read through some of them in a moment. Just skim through those qualifications a bit in verses 1 to 7. These are not all the qualifications for elders. We have other parts of the Bible. Here's a, here's a part of them. Then you look at 8 to 13, and those are the qualifications for deacons. You skim them. Now, one way to misuse these is what I'm underlining is not to take them seriously at all. We will always have cases like Judas and Demas. But one reason churches have been mistreated is because these qualifications are not insisted upon. We're not wiser than God. We're not more loving than God to let people into positions of leadership or to maintain them in those positions who do not meet these qualifications. So we take them seriously. We explore them in a person's life with great care. It takes at least six to nine months. There are nine pages to go through with anybody who's interested in being an elder at Emmanuel. About six to nine months. That's just one level of it going through. The other way to misuse them is this, to have such a high standard that nobody ever meets them. The reasons these qualifications are given is precisely because people can meet them. Some have pointed out, Don Carson, the only thing unique about these qualifications is what? There's nothing unique about these qualifications. With the exception of able to teach, you look at the list. Every one of these is a character trait commanded and expected of Christians elsewhere in the Bible. Every one of them. You see that? They're so practical. Here's what I want to say to you. Here's what I want to say to you. You're interested in dating. You're in high school. Do I like her? Do I like him? This passage is so practical. You should look for the kind of person whose life looks like this in 1 Timothy 3. This is, this is what gospel transformation looks like. On one level, then, that's just how normal expected Christians are they to live. It should be normal for Christians to be moving in this direction or to look like it. So who they are, their titles and qualifications, what are their qualifications? Now, in a moment, I'm going to read through the qualifications and make a brief comment as we categorize them. But before we read these uh, with a brief comment, I want to note a qualification that seems to be it seems to be overlooked in an increasing way. And what is that? The Bible reserves the role of elder for men, not all men, but qualified men. And in the context just before one Timothy three. And remember, the chapter breaks are not part of the original uh, text, but. And the context right before Paul gives qualifications for leadership, take out the chapter break. Hear the word of the Lord on the preceding context in 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with self-control. If anyone desires the office of an elder, here you go. Beloved, here's what I want to say. These words are for our good because all of God's word is for our good. And we should esteem his word right and hate every false way. Out of love, God delegates, only known to him, the role, the office of an elder, not for all men, but qualified men. And God's reservation is not as a result of the fall 
But it's part of why God's wise and good design before the fall. The reason Paul writes this is so is the beauty of God's creational order and design. So he appeals to the order of creation before the fall for the first reason. Verse uh, 13, for Adam was created first and then Eve. Nor is this simply a cultural situation only applicable to a peculiar context in Ephesus where women are in leadership and teaching false doctrine because as the Anglican scholar Gerald Bray has pointed out, Paul begins this entire section saying in verse 8, here is my desire in every place. Now I know this passage rubs us the wrong way. It's even awkward to read these verses out loud. Some of us want to turn the channel. But beloved, here's what I want to tell us. We should never be embarrassed by the words of our Lord, even if we don't fully get them. He died for us after all. And therefore, whatever he says is for our good. He loves us. Moreover, there are other cultures in our world today who are not as embarrassed by these kinds of words as we are in our cultural moment in the United States. Perhaps we're being shaped more by our culture than we realize. A culture in which... My opinion, I think that sadly, our culture, the primary way in which women have the most value, the main way we seem to celebrate women the most is if they act like men. We've lost something essential when we don't celebrate the beauty of God's good design and we should mourn the loss of the distinction between men and women. God created men and women fully in his image and both are needed to fully image God. Both genders are needed, and only those two to image God. Women are indispensable to the plan and image of God. God also made man and woman to glorify him in distinct but glorifying ways. I take my dog on a walk at night. The glory of the sun and the glory of the moon both testify to the light of God's glory in similar distinct ways. Why did I mention my dog? Because I've taken my dog on a walk, and and the last several days, the moon is full. And it's beautiful. And there's a little lake that I walk by, and it's the silver glow in the lake, and it's beautiful. My point is, we need the moon to shine as only the moon can. And we need the sun to shine as only the sun can. And they both display an overlapping but unique glory. This is the beauty of God's design, the sun and the moon. And similarly... By God's creational design, men need to shine as only men can and women need to shine as only women can for both testify to God's wise design with distinct but similar lights. Even Neil Diamond knew this in his love song. I am the sun, you are the moon, you are the words, I'm the tune. Go look it up. Well, not really, but there it is. Now, tragically, these verses in 1 Timothy 2 have been used in ways to harm women in Muslim lands with Sharia law or even in America. In such ways, those should be addressed and certainly be reported, particularly in areas of criminal physical abuse. But there's an increasing tragedy perpetuated against women when they are encouraged to do what God in his wisdom reserves for qualified men. It's just trading one form of oppression of women for another form of oppression of women, encouraging them to act in ways contrary to God's design, asking David to put on Saul's armor. 
Now, this is not the only passage in the Bible, and this is all new to you. It sounds strange and hard and about the value and roles of men and women. There are 66 books in the Bible, and here are a few verses. That's the point my sister made to me. I emailed this portion of my sermon to about 10 different ladies and said, what do you think? My, there are two people you don't want to cross in a dark alley. You don't want to cross a, a drunk man with a gun, and you don't want to cross my sister. <laughs> don't tell her I said that, because I'm, I'm, I'm big brother. So I, I send this to my sister and say, tell me what you think of this text and this. What, what do you think? What do you think? So here's what she here's what she texts back to me. My thoughts are that if you take the Bible as a whole and you see the roles of men and women that they have in God's plan, these few verses referenced in Timothy should not be offensive. When you see faithful women like Lydia, who ran her household and business, Miriam and Moses, the courage and wisdom, Esther's courage and wisdom, the many ladies who supported Jesus during his earthly life, there are many roles that God uses women for. This role is not one of them. Nor would I minimize the wife of an elder with all they do to support, pray, remain wise, supportive, despite the hurt that comes with being part of a family and seeing people choose to live in sin. There's the broader context. Now, if you want to read more of this, there's a book in our bookstall, God's Good Design, by an Australian scholar named Claire Smith. I would say this, that Adam, if you go read Genesis, Adam stood by silently when Eve partook of the fruit. He must have thought that was being a good husband. And men are repeating the same error with this matter. Well, now let's read these qualifications together so we can be reminded of the qualifications he lays down that he gives guidance. So I'm going to organize these under a few thoughts. One is I'm going to focus on elders because there's overlap, but you, 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 you can see it. Number one, an elder must be, verse two, an elder must be above reproach or blameless. That doesn't mean they're never accused of anything, but nothing ever sticks. I mean, you can expect accusations to come. Uh, do your workers or students always represent the conversation you'd have with them right when you write them up? Well, of course they don't. That's part of what goes. So it's common for people in sin or struggling not to respond well to confrontation. The point is there's an overall qualification that there's a blamelessness. They're above reproach. Then you have a group of qualifications all put under relationship to the self. Relationship to the self. Verse 2, must be the husband of one wife. That could also be a one-woman kind of man. It rules out polygamy and insists on purity of heart and mind. That somebody could be married and not be a one-woman kind of man. Does the wife speak against him? Does she feel loved? Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, verse 2. Sober-minded, their thoughts are controlled, not intoxicated with fads or the like. Controlled actions, not taken in by every ribbon cause of the month. They're self-controlled. Overall, they're respectable. They're not a drunkard, verse 3. Part of the minister's self-control. This doesn't mean that they never drink, but they're not controlled by it, and they're not known for it. Not violent, but gentle. You're often dealing with people in sin and you have to be angry and yet not sin. They can't be violent. They can't strike the sheep. Not quarrelsome. This is somebody who can make a point without making an issue of their point. Somebody who can actually submit to other people without grumbling about it. Somebody whose spiritual gift is not, but what about the devil's advocate? Not a lover of money. Relationship to the family. Verse 4. 
he must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care? How will he shepherd God's church? This isn't that, 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 that elders and deacons have to have children whose, whose, whose children never act up. But is there a pattern among all their children that might show something that there's a, there's a, there's high spiritual pretensions out in public, but what's going on in the home? Is this somebody like Eli who refused to deal with his own kids? More, every husband is a minister and your family is your congregation. How are you pastoring your family? Do you read the Bible with your wife? Do you pray with your wife? Do you insist? Are you the leader in that? You know, I asked my kids the other day, we're driving to the corner and Carson and Catherine were with me. And I said, tell me, guys, what do you, are there ways that I could love your mom better? Even when Catherine was little, I'd ask, I remember, I took her to McDonald's and got her a big thing of ice cream. And I said, how, I fattened her up. I know, I agree. I, I, big thing. And I said, how do you think I could be a better dad and husband to your mom? I, you know what she said? Ice cream right here on the nose. And she said, be a king. That's how. Get used to disappointment, kids. There you go. The point is, our families, our wives, our children recommend this. Relationship to Christ. Verse 7. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall in the condemnation of of the devil. Or you could say, not recently be over some kind of significant sin. This isn't punishment or mean or you don't believe it. But time will tell, and you want to see proper restoration. Relationship to outsiders, verse 2 and 7, hospitable. That actually doesn't mean getting together with the people that you like, although that's a wonderful thing. But it's actually a lover of strangers. You take strangers, and you turn them into your friends. Somebody who's hospitable. Verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Would people around town or at work go, you got to be kidding me? Or do you know this? So there are the qualifications we insist upon and emphasize more than anyone. And you'll see, read through the deacons, there's a quite similar overlap there. Who are the leaders? What are the qualifications? What do they do? Would you turn to Acts 20? Or you can, you can think with me. I'm going to read Acts 20 because what do these leaders do? And here's my argument. What they do, you can tell by what they're called. What they do, you can tell by what they're called. So in Acts 20, you can listen. Or in Acts 20, 17, Paul's giving this farewell address to elders. In verse 17, he says, Now, Acts 20, 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, Now, the rest of this chapter is his parting words to a group of leaders in the church he calls elders. But look again in verse 17. What does he call them? He calls them elders. Well, are the elders a different group from those overseers in 1 Timothy 3.1? Well, look down at verse 28. He's still addressing, he's still in the middle of a sermon to this group known as elders. But notice how he refers to these elders in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, ESV, overseers. It's just another term for the same office in 1 Timothy 3.1. An elder is an overseer. Not two offices. The same office by different words. 
But there's one more title for the office. Finish verse 28. You are to care for the church of God. That's the, that's, that's the word shepherd. So the NIV reads, be shepherds of God's flock. So an elder is an overseer, is a shepherd. Well, what's this word pastor? It's just, it's just a Latin word that comes over into our language. And the pastor just means shepherd. So you have those three main words, all translated five ways, but they all refer to the same office. A pastor is a shepherd, is an overseer, is a bishop, is an elder. Now, what if that's what the titles are, what hints do we have from those titles about how they should function in the life of a church? Well, the first one, overseer, that the position then implies a measure of authority. That is, they oversee things, and hence they have authority over all of the things in the church. There's nothing they can do or shouldn't do. They're an overseer. They have responsibility, authority for every aspect of the church. That's why, surprisingly, later in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says they are overseers. And here's one way you respond to overseers, Hebrews. You submit to your leaders and you obey them. Now, unless there's clear and obvious sin, here's just an example. Generally... You follow the the elders when they put forward something for a vote. And if you have a discussion and you can't, well, just know that you'll give an account. Just as the elders give an account, a stricter account. What about the term elder? Well, that has a long history stretching back into Israel's history when you chose people to help out and make wise decisions like Moses, uh, Jethro telling him to pick out some people to help. So the term shows then that the elders are not necessarily people of age, but people with wisdom and understanding. That's the accent. Then there's the term shepherd, which includes the other two terms. It's one way to summarize the whole story of the Bible. We're referred to as sheep. Have you seen that clip? Somebody just sent it to me. This is Jesus dealing with me in my sin. And it's a shepherd and there's a bank of water and the shepherd gets the sheep out and goes like this and goes right back around the corner into the water again, right? We are sheep. We want our own way. We wander off because we think that we know best, but we need to be rescued from ourselves. So God himself is referred to as a shepherd of his people. And friends, that's your greatest need today. Your greatest need today is not to be yourself. Your greatest need is to be saved from yourself. You need a shepherd. You're a sheep. The problem is that we love ourselves too much and we follow our desires too much. And having rescued his sheep, he protects them and he guides them. And God is not only a good shepherd, but in the Old Testament, from kings to prophets, he refers to them as shepherds, Ezekiel 34. What this means then is that you move into the New Testament. God is giving us leaders who are to reflect God's own care through men called shepherds because shepherds lead and feed God's people. They provide and protect God's people as a reflection of God himself. And their primary role, Peter says, remember when Peter, he heard after his denial, Jesus restored him and said, feed my sheep. And first Peter five, Peter has one message to fellow elders, feed my sheep. You don't change the diet. You don't change it. You preach the word. You give them the word. They have to be around people. Shepherds are not board members. They're not shareholders who get together and make decisions and simply cast votes. Nor should you ever view elders as representatives. I'll vote for you if you get this done. That's unbiblical. Shepherds are not representatives. The only person they represent is God under his word. Their hands should be dirty from serving, hearts heavy from caring, and faces happy from watching them prosper. Those are shepherds. Shepherds flock the flock. They shouldn't. They shepherd the flock of God. What about deacons? Well, the word deacon simply means servant. 
In Acts chapter 6, we have people serving as deacons. Now, these probably aren't technically deacons yet, but they show us how they ought to function, I think. We have a few things that deacons should do. I'm in Acts 6. You can listen or you can turn there with me to Acts 6, verses 1 and 2. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's the most basic meaning of a word deacon. It's a servant. It's right there at the end. It's somebody who serves tables. It's a table waiter. So that title then represents how deacons function. They're servants. They may have other functions, but at their core, the deacons are servants. Not only servants, but they're task-specific servants. According to the end of verse 1, there's a need in the church. Widows are being neglected for distribution. That's the specific need, and unity was on the line by it being overlooked. So we learned that. Here are servants, that's what the name means, who are given a specific task, that's how they function here. And now we learn that those servants, by what they do, actually help protect the unity of the church. They're chosen here to be in charge of food distribution, not because the elders were told, slap, 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 that's not your role, but to help promote the unity of the body to make sure that it's happening. Now think of, think how important that role is then of a deacon. Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. He died for the unity of the church. One of the worst sins, according to Proverbs 16, are those who perpetuate false reports and those who sow discord among the body. You're ripping the body of Christ he, he put together. And one thing we learn from this passage about deacons is that they protect the task-specific servants who protect the unity. And not only do they serve the congregation by meeting needs and promoting the unity, they also serve the elders of the church. Verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching and praying to serve tables. It's not that it was wrong. After all, they're overseers. But now push comes to shove. We can't do both. And what we must not surrender is giving ourselves to prayer in the word. So if you put all this together, you have deacons who are task-specific servants who promote the unity of the church by meeting physical needs of the congregation under the oversight of the elders. And now the last question, which I'll return to with how I started, why are they in the church? And here it is. Because you need to look not at deacons, but through deacons and see Christ himself. There was a prophet named Isaiah who saw a time when God would bring forth a suffering servant to meet the needs of his people. And this suffering will act wisely, Isaiah 52. But he'll carry out his task in the shadows because he will not cry aloud or lift his voice in the streets, Isaiah 42. And with his blood, this servant will sprinkle many nations clean. Then centuries later on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth solves a complaint that's threatening the unity of his followers. And he said he would solve it like this, how he turns the logic of the world on its head. You tell me who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who's serving? Who's greater, the one being served the food or the one serving the food? The answer is obviously the one being served. But it's not like that at my house. I'm among you as one who deacons. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. God gives deacons to churches to remind them of Christ, the suffering servant, who's met our deepest needs and longings. Look through the office and see Christ, the servant. 
and elders. We've sung about this this morning. We've read about it. They're shepherds. They're shepherds. And every shepherd in the Old Testament finally failed from David and so on. And then you hear this man, this carpenter from Nazareth on the streets of Palestine say, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. It's an audacious claim to deity. The last time anybody said that was Ezekiel 34. I will shepherd my people. Or Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd. And who is this guy saying now he's the good shepherd? Jesus is the fulfillment of God's magnificent promise that a shepherd would really come. The king of heaven. And yet the friend of sinners. The maker of the moon. And yet the shepherd of our souls. And Peter says now that we are those who have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And we say quietly in our hearts, whatever song you go to, hallelujah, what a savior. Praise God for the offices of elder and deacon that we might always rest and see Christ as the perfect servant and the perfect shepherd that he's one who truly never leaves us or forsakes us. He gave his life to save us. And goodness and mercy are chasing us down all the way home. Praise the Lord for his son, who's a good shepherd, who suffered in our place that we could be brought to God.